thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight uh, we are studying a, a really important chapter in the book of Genesis, that chapter 22. In fact, we won't cover the entire chapter, only the first 19 verses. And um, partly because it makes sense, there is a clear break um, at verse 20, and partly because the material is so rich that we won't have time to cover the whole chapter. So if you do have your um, Bible with you, with, uh, with you tonight, please turn to chapter 22 and uh, follow with me as we read these verses, 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his, th- by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. Beersheba, of course, is the place where they were staying at the time. You all know the story. I'm sure it's uh, part of our consciousness. The story of Abraham, who, whom God had asked him to offer up his son as a sacrifice. The first commentary I would like to make is not about what you have heard, but what you have not heard. And oftentimes, we may be tempted to conclude that if something was not said, it implies that it isn't important. In a specific instance, the striking feature of this text is the silence over Abraham's emotional turmoil. Nothing is said about him. He merely speaks... And when he does, it's mostly, here am I. And he gives one order to the, to the two men and replies to his son. And he says nothing else. The first, the first mistake we must avoid is to conclude that um, he was completely insensitive. That this whole thing meant pretty much nothing to him. He was so much high in the clouds and sanctity that he felt nothing and that he did not share in any kind of anxiety that we may share or may have when it comes to our children. The fact that it isn't mentioned in Scripture does not mean that it was not there. Keep in mind that this was not a new story to the readers. Scripture was spent much later and for the most part was oral tradition. So when the story was written, it was written to an audience who knew every detail of the entire story. It was not something new. This was not the news of the day. The second thing that we have to keep in mind is that Scripture, more often than not, is not trying to give us a human perspective, meaning how human behave and how they feel, and what they think, and what goes through their mind. After all, we have many, many, many stories and many uh, books written on the topic. What it's trying to do is to give us God's perspective. Therefore, it does tend to be terse when it comes to human emotions. But the fact that they are not recorded does not imply 
that they're not important or that it's, they're not important for God. Often we may be tempted, especially when we're going through sorrow or suffering, to think of God as being far from us. It's natural. And that might be magnified by passages such as this one when we have a sense of cold, coldness or, or a, a lack of warmth in the text. The purpose of the text was merely to remind people of what has happened and to help them reflect on its meaning. And that's what we're going to do. It is that reflection which carries in it graces for us. Because instead of thinking about why God did what He did, it's going to make us think about what is it that we're doing or not doing. First, uh, some background in Hebrew literature, this is known as the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. This is how the story is known. So it's very well known. All they have to say is, yeah, it's the Akedah, and that's how they comment on it. The important thing to remember is, we have to, is that we have to keep on transcending this sort of chapter slicing of Scripture, Right? Oh, that was last chapter, and now we're in this chapter. Do you remember what happened last chapter? Hagar, and what happened then? What happened to Abraham last chapter? He lost a son. Okay, so we've got to connect the dots. Those st stories come and heal one or the other, and it's two losses, not one. Previous chapter, he lost a son. But what happened? The s that son was about to die in a desert. And what happened then? God intervened. And God saved that son. And blessed him. Same thing here. Same thing here. There is a difference though. At the end of the story, Isaac doesn't get to be the ruler of 12 nations, 12 tribes, and have a whole you know, big patch of land. None of that happens to him. right? The blessing is spiritual. It's a very different kind of blessing. And we have to understand why. The other important thing, obviously, that the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, brings to close the whole spiritual odyssey of Abraham. Why? What was the very first thing that God told Abram? If you remember, all the way back when he started, when he was still living with his parents, he told him, go forth. Go forth to the land I will show you. And what does he tell him here? Almost word for word the same thing. He tells him, Go to the land which I shall tell you. On the mountain which I shall tell you. What is the difference? In the first case, when he started, what did he lose? Or rather, whom did he lose? His father. His mother. And here... When God speaks to him, what is he about to lose? His son. So here he is, between these two generations, father and mother and children, and what is he asked to do? Lose it all. Welcome to the Catholic Church. This is it. In summary. But wait. He's not asked to lose it all the way a loser might lose everything. You know when you watch kids playing a game, 
let's say, um, Serpents and Ladders or Sorry. I love Sorry. It's one of my favorite games. I'm very competitive with Sorry, actually. My kids don't enjoy it as much as I do. What happened? You know what I'm talking about. Sorry, you know you start. You have your you have four uh, peons on one square, and you need to get them home. But uh, if you manage to get out of, so you, let's say you have the blue and I have the red, and if I manage to get one out, I might be able to actually switch with you, force you to go back to where you started from. And I say sorry. I'm really not sorry, but I'll tell you I'm sorry. Well, when when kids play games, and actually even grown-ups, what happened from time to time? They can throw up a tantrum. Right? They're just not happy losing. And then make sure you hear it. God is not telling Abraham, it's okay for you to have a tantrum. He's not telling him, it's okay for you when I ask you to leave your mother and father and sacrifice your son for you to have a tantrum. That's the key. As the saying goes, God loves the joyful giver. God loves the joyful giver. If there was one word, one word you want to take, take away from the Gospel of St. Luke, the whole Gospel of St. Luke, it is precisely joy. God loves the joyful giver. So here is the life of this man. Sandwiched between two losses and expressed in losses. And oh, by the way, it doesn't stop here. What happens in the next chapter if you've been reading scripture? Sarah is going to die. Sarah is going to die. So here, this is the life of this man who lived, most, who lived as a nomad, never having a house he could call his own, never having a place he could call his own, and who lost his parents. He left them by God's command. He left, he lost a son whom he loved. And now he, he has been asked to sacrifice a son. And a little further down, his wife is going to die. There lies the rub for us. Right. Why do we say Abraham is the father of faith? Not because his life was so much harder than ours. Honestly, it wasn't. First of all, he, he, he outlived all of us. And he was in good health all the way through. He was wealthy. He lived relatively in peace. Yeah, he had a couple of adventures, but it wasn't immediately his own. It was his nephew. Right? As far as I was concerned, he lived relatively in peace. It wasn't because of this. It was because of his outlook on life, which is vastly different than ours, or tends to be vastly different than most. Than most. And that's the key for us throughout the whole entire um, reading tonight, to focus on that. How do we cling to things? And sometimes secretly. Sometimes secretly. How do we assume that we are entitled to, to things? That we have the right for them? That they are our own? I just saw a movie not too long ago. Not a really good movie. It's a remake of 
a pretty good movie called When the Earth Stood Still. And this remake of it wasn't particularly good. But there was one line in it that was really striking. So here is the super alien god that showed up, as usual. Right? As all aliens, they always show up in America. Right? The only place in the whole universe where aliens always end up stranded. In the United States of America, nowhere else. And uh, he's talking to the minister, the minister of defense, who's basically trying to explain to him. And she says, "Well, you know, this is, uh, you know, we live here. This is our planet." And he then looked at her and said, "Your planet? Yeah, this is ours." And he answers, "No, it's not." I mean, just think about this level. We assume this is our planet. It's ours. We fight for it all the time. But we just take it for granted. It's our planet. Think, or take that as an assignment tonight. If you go home and pray, just go through the list of things you assume are yours. And then start by the least obvious ones. Your health. All of us assume our health is our own. We are entitled to health. Your dreams. And here's one that is very insidious but very powerful. One area where we are very, very rich and we really want it to remain this way. Our prayers. We don't even think about it, but we pray for whatever we want to pray. And we assume this is our right to do so. And on and on the list goes of all those things that we own that are ours. And often one of the smallest ones are the most insidious ones. The, hard, the hardest to get, rid, to get rid of, to let go. And what is this chapter teaching us? What is the life of Abraham teaching us? Something that is self-evident that we all know, but we all also tend to be very good at ignoring. We can't take any of it with us. We all know that, but it's sort of some sort of an abstract notion. Like, for instance, Pluto is out there. And Pluto is part of the... Uh, of uh, our galaxy. Yeah, we all know that, but, you know, who cares? And that's one of those who cares. The difference is that Abraham knew how to live that. Caesarus of Arles, one of the fathers, says of Abraham that he is a type of God the Father. And that should be fairly obvious to all of us to see. Because he offers his son as a sacrifice... And so did God the Father, offering his son as a sacrifice. Origen puts it this way, I think it's very beautiful. Behold God contending with people in magnificent generosity. Abraham offered God a mortal son who was not put to death. God delivered to death an immortal son for humanity. Abraham offered God a mortal son who was not put to death. God put to death an immortal son for humanity. And, by the way, as we go through this, every, every, every time you hear me say Abraham, replace that by I. There's nothing special about the calling of Abraham that's different from ours. Anytime you hear me say Abraham, replace it by I. Me. Lest we run the risk of putting Abraham on this pedestal up there, on Mount Everest, 
and He's so far high above us, and so holier than us, then we can never get there. And so we don't have to make any effort. No. Whatever happened to Him, the reason why this was penned here, it wasn't for Abraham. He received His glory. He didn't need His name be mentioned in Scripture to receive His glory, the glory that He's been enjoying ever since Jesus raised from the dead. He is receiving His glory in heaven, and He has no need for His name being mentioned in Scripture. This is not mentioned here so that we can glorify Abraham. He doesn't need us. This is mentioned for us. This is mentioned for us. This is explaining to us how God deals with His most beloved friends. Most beloved friends. You all know the story of St. Teresa of Avila by now. You should know it by heart. I mentioned it so many times. She's one of my favorite saints to begin with. I have a great devotion with St. Teresa of Avila. If you don't know her, you are very encouraged to get to know her. And she was in Spain. Spain, in the middle of the summer, the heat is hitting 120. Humidity is 90%. And she's dressed as a Carmelite. And she's sick. And on the wagon. And the wheel of the wagon broke at noon. And here they are laboring, trying to fix it, and it's not going anywhere. Exasperated, she raised her eyes to heaven and said, Lord, why is this happening to us? And the Lord said, this is how I treat my friends. And she replied, then don't complain that you have so few. This is how I treat my friends. This is how I treat my friends. I'm going to come back on that, but I just want to, I want to go through this and let it sink a little bit before we, we go through this. God put Abraham to the test. My friends, we are all going to be put to the test. All of us will be put to the test. Do you ever see your trials and your difficulties and the challenges of life as God putting you to the test? Does it ever cross your mind? If it doesn't, you're not yet thinking biblically. If it does, praise God. Because you're definitely, you and I would be definitely making progress along that journey. God is going to put us to the test. Why does God put us to the test? Why? Is that like, you know, a celestial high that we have to go through and receive a diploma before we get into heaven? Is he like a schoolmaster waiting for us and then, you know, to swat us because we didn't do our latest assignment? Is that what it is? Does God need to put us to the test? Yeah, he suffered for us. But what does it mean when we say God put us to the test? What does it mean when we say God put Abraham to the test? To test our love for him. Okay? Pardon? Struggle. He puts us to struggle. But why? Why does he put us to struggle? To gain merit by sharing his suffering. Yes? Yes? He's after our obedience. Okay. But fundamentally, does God, does God doesn't know... is. is is it that God does not know how much we love Him? He knows. In other words, when He put us to the test, is He going to learn something He doesn't know already? No. Ah, that's it. The purpose of the test isn't for God, it's for us. It's for us. The prime example of God putting somebody to the test is found in the New Testament. Right? With... My favorite, well, my second favorite, I have to say, Apostle, St. Peter. My first favorite is St. John. My second is St. Peter. What happened? 
Even if all of them, let, let, I'll be with you all the way through. Really? Peter, really? Before the cock crows twice, you'll have this. Right? You know the story. What came out of it? Self-knowledge. Peter was confronted with himself. He got to know himself better. After all, didn't he? And when he found out about himself, how did he think about God? Was he upset that God made him discover himself? Or was he grateful? Grateful. Grateful. Now, was it an easy business to get Peter to see himself? It wasn't. Was it God's fault? No. It was all the gunk that Peter has accumulated throughout life as part of the defense mechanism of building a proper self-esteem. This is who I am. God needed to clear all that up. And it's not going to be easy because we don't make it easy. Why? We have our attachments to things. We have our sense of honor. We have our pride. We have all these little vices that nibble at us from all sides. So, God put us to the test. All of us. No, no, no exception. And that's frankly why we die, even though Jesus conquered death. If Jesus conquered death, why do we keep dying? Why couldn't he have just said, alright, from now on, I conquered death, none of you will die. See, to me, this is the most, this is the most powerful proof that anyone who tells you work is not important is mistaken. If work was not important, death would not be the greatest work we have to go through. Death would not be important. Jesus triumphed over death. He, un, he basically undo, he has undone the damage of death. He could have dispensed with it. He could have said, from now on, nobody dies. When the time comes, I'll come here and I'll take you to heaven. Just as I ascended to heaven, I'll come here and I'll take you with me. Why do we keep on dying? The answer is really simple, even though we don't like it. Because we need to. We need to die. It's a necessity. It's a necessity. If I were, if I had foreknowledge and I were to tell Four of you, tonight, you won't make it home, you'll be dead. What would you do? Now, assume you believe me, assume it's true. You know, I don't know, I, I make an apple appear or something, and you're convinced, absolutely, it's true. Right? Let's assume it's absolutely true. Ah, okay, good, good. We should not be afraid of death. Yeah, that's the first step. Does it come easy not to be afraid of death? Does it? All right. It doesn't, right? What makes it possible for us not to be afraid of death? What makes it possible for Abraham to walk the way he did? It's the same thing, you see? Okay, faith. Ah. So before, between faith and love, there is something. Something before that. Yes, yes, before friendship. Knowledge. Knowledge. You can't trust and you can't love and you can't befriend 
somebody you don't know. Can you? Right? Can you say to somebody, buddy, you're my best friend. We've been friends for 20 years, but you know what? I don't know you from Adam or Eve. Who are you? Knowledge. Knowledge. Right? Familial knowledge, not intellectual knowledge as in, hmm, I know everything I need to know about your DNA. And your blood pressure. And your IQ. And the color of your hair. Familial knowledge. Shared intimacy. Presence. That and then the faith that that person we have come to know has conquered death. And that he is true to his word. He is true to... You've put those three things together... And the fear of death begins to dispel. Now, that's put, that, that, this is put negatively. Can we put it positively? Beyond fear of death, what is there? Yeah, but focus on death again. How would you start to look at death? And that is the paradox of Christian, the Christian faith. Joyfully. Joyfully. The fathers of the church spoke of death as the antechamber of the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is the room before the hall where the wedding feast is celebrated and you're invited. This is something that non, those who don't have faith cannot understand. Because this is not a joy that is founded only on the strength of my belief. If that was the case, it'll be dispelled like everything else. It'll be a fad. It'll come and go. And I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about generations after generations of Christians who lived in that abiding joy. So it's just me. It's, it's ageless. This is not powered by human intelligence or human knowledge. It is powered by grace and by the living sacrament of the Lord Himself. And if you can understand that and strive for it and live it, I have no need to explain to you what is going on here. Because precisely, this is precisely what carried Abraham forward. Now let's think a little bit about what he had to go through. Let's revisit this department of death for a second, but not for us anymore. For a child. I think all of us would agree that it's a lot easier for us to die than to watch a child die, right? You all agree, especially if it's your own kid. Here's a question. Raise your hand if you know of anybody who God had asked to take his son, to, bound, to, put, to, to take his son and to walk three days to a place with his son, with the wood and a knife, and when he can get there, he is to kill his own son. You know anybody? No. No, we don't, do we? Hmm. Abraham must have been confronted with two problems, not one. The first one, obviously, is the easier to explain and understand, the turmoil. He just lost his son, now he's about to lose the second one, and God said, you're going to sacrifice this son to me. Can God lie? If he told Abraham, you 
will sacrifice that son. Was he saying it in jest? Was he pretending that Abraham will sacrifice his son? Could God do that? Could God deceive? No, of course not. So what did Abraham do? In point of fact, origin, again, the Apostle Paul, who I believe was teaching by the Spirit, what feeling, what plan Abraham considered, has revealed it. He says, By faith, Abraham did not hesitate when he offered his only son, in whom he had received the promises, thinking that God is able to raise him up even from the dead. And St. Ephraim says, In two things then was Abraham victorious, that he killed his son, although he did not kill him, and that he believed that after Isaac died, he would be raised up again, and would go back down with him. For Abraham was firmly convinced that he who said to him, through Isaac shall your descendants be named, was not lying. Abraham's faith wasn't, God will find a way out of this. He'll come up with some trick. When God asked him to perform the sacrifice, that morning when he woke up, it was already done. It was a done deal. His son was dead. There was no hesitation on his part. There was no um, trying to wiggle his way out. The fascinating thing is that if you recall... When God said, I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and see what, what's going up with those people and deal with them appropriately, what did Abraham do? What did he do? He bartered with God. 50, then 40, then 30, all the way down to 5. He bartered really hard, trying to save these people. Not a word here. Not one word. Not one word. Think about what we do. When something happens, it's not our way. Let's not even talk about death. Let's just say taxes. Right? Although someone might say that uh, our fate is to die by taxes. But just think about taxes. What is our reaction when something doesn't go the way we want? Right? What is our favorite question, our most cherished possession when in the interrogative form? This is what I call it. Our most cherished possession in the interrogative form. It is the one we hang over our chimney and the one we really keep close to our heart. And it's two words. Why me? That's where we start. Right? So, instead of being, instead of starting at, you know, pass, go, and take 200, we start in jail. Why me? And sometimes... I feel that God answers back and saying, why not? Is there something wrong with you? Why me? The real question isn't why me. That's not what we really care about. If you really sit down and think it through, there is a question behind the question, a question we really don't want to ask. But the real question is, how dare you? How could you? Who are you to do this to me? Why me? Not a word from Abraham. He gets on with it. He's walking with the certainty that his son will be dead by his own hand. And not a word. Not a word of complaint. 
Not a word of recrimination. Not a word of criticism. He is going to do what God asked him to do. And he has the certainty that Isaac will be raised from the dead because God said, by your descendants shall all nations be blessed. And God cannot, and God cannot lie. Look at our lives. Think about how we live. Let's take the rosary. There are so many blessings attached to the rosary. So many. So many of them. My favorite story is about this. Uh, it is, it, it is re- recounted by St. Uh, Saint, um, Louis de Montfort in, in his book, The Mysteries of the Rosary. And he said that there's this one woman who uh, died and went for personal judgment. And the balance was set. And her good deeds were, were put in, uh, in a balance. And on her sins were put in the other side of the balance. And her sins outweighed her good deeds. Which meant it was hell. And right then, Our Lady came and dropped in the part of the balance that held her good deeds, the one rosary she said in her whole life. One rosary. And the balance tilted the other way around. Let's take the rosary. Here's one question. How faithful are we to the recitation of the rosary? Do we use it as a bartering tool? I'll say the rosary if this happens. You didn't give me this. I'm just going to say the rosary now because obviously it's not working. I'm too busy. I have school to do. I don't have time to say the rosary now. Oh, I have friends here. I can't ask them to say the rosary. It is so uncool. How can I do such a thing? Let's not go even any further than that. There's so many promises associated with the rosary. So much. We're so good. We're masters of our destiny. We decide when we praise Our Lady and when we don't, even though our salvation, for most of us, really depends on her prayers. Think about that. And I'm not even get to the Mass and how we apprehend Mass. Right? Do we try to come in early? Try. Not always succeed. Life here is maddeningly complicated and difficult. But do we try? Is it foremost on our mind? I'm going to be in church earlier so I can dispose myself for Mass. Do we dress appropriately for Mass? Meaning, dress up for Mass. And dress in clothes which are modest and show devotion. Do I try, do I try to keep focused? And not look right or left, even though it could be really hard. Do I try? Try. Not always succeed, just try. Right? Here's a very simple gesture to show you how often we have been conditioned not to think, not to think about the presence of our Lord. When I sit in the pew, do I cross my legs? You might say, what's wrong crossing our legs now? If you really thought about it for a second, you'd realize that crossing your legs is a sign of social comfort. You are among equals. But he's behind us. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He is God Almighty. And we sit in front of him and we cross our legs. I'm not saying this as a way of criticism. I'm just pointing out how all of us, starting with me, 
are bound to own so many gestures and so many things that we take for granted. And we don't want to be bothered. We don't want to be bothered. But do we really pay attention? Do we understand what we're doing? I mentioned that to you. This, it's something that's very little known among so many parishioners. Speaking in a church, unless absolutely necessary, is a venial sin. Why? Because when we speak in a social context, and we're saying things, even though they're nice, hi, how are you, how are the kids, all that is nice. But the problem with all this is that it's not sacred discourse. And this is a holy place. So we bring that which is not holy in a place that is holy. And that is profane. You see, that's my point about all the little things that we own. We take for granted. They're ours. I'm not going to look like a geek when somebody says hi to me in church and just ignore them. Of course I'm going to stand there and talk and, and shake hands and do all that stuff. And assume that I'm just allowed to do it because this is my place. It's my church. We own it. None of that in Abraham. None of that in his behavior. When he got there, there was a ram. Right? Why is it that there was a ram? Why did he have to sacrifice an animal? What is it? God likes barbecue? First of all, you understand the burnt offering, right? A burnt offering is an offering, it's called the, the ascending offering. Because all of the sacrifice goes up in smoke. All of it is burnt. You don't get to, the priest doesn't get to partake in it. It's a burnt offering. I mean, think about that for a second in, in, in relationship to Isaac. How he must have been thinking about it. And at least thanking himself that it was a burnt offering. But why was he, why was there a ram there? Why did he... I mean, couldn't have God said, okay, that's it. You did it. You showed me. You passed the test. It's over. You know, take a couple of cucumbers and cut them or something. Make a salad. Why sacrifice an animal? Because it is liturgy. Because the whole thing from beginning to end foreshadows the Mass. That's why. A priest, and Abraham was back then a priest... Needs to off, need to offer a sacrifice. Why? Because it foreshadows the Mass, where sacrifice is being offered. So when we go through Mass, do we think about what we can offer when we come to Mass? Are we coming to offer, as Abraham did, or are we coming to take? So we sit there, ah, yeah, the priest, homily was boring. And the choir today, hmm, they were completely off base. I was just born out of my wits. I'm not sure I like this church. I might go somewhere else. We're missing the whole point. It's not about us coming here to get something. Abraham didn't go all the way up to Mount Moriah thinking about, okay, how many of my descendants are going to be? Two million or two million five hundred thousand? I'm not really quite sure. I should ask God about that. That was not on his, he was not thinking about what he's going to get. He was going there to offer his son to God. When you come to church, do you offer your children to God? Do you give your children to God? He's not going to force himself on you. 
the language in the Hebrew made it such that it was really an invitation. Abraham could have said no. It was not a command. In English, it is, the language is stronger. But in Hebrew, there's a declination added to imperative that makes it really an invitation. He could have said no. That's what makes it even more poignant, more, more, more dramatic. He did not. When you come, do you offer your, your children to God? As in, they are yours. I consecrate my children to you, O Lord. And whatever you will be for them, your will be done. Do you prepare yourself that God might want, just might want, to take your children to Him before you? Or will we deny God the love of a child? You know the movie uh, Marcelino Panivino? Oh, my favorite movie. My absolutely favorite movie. Anybody didn't see the movie Marcelino Panivino here? Oh, you should see this movie. It's old, it's black and white, but you will love it. You'll just love that movie. You know what I'm talking about, right? This is mass. Mass is when we come and we look at our week past and we say, what have I done in this week that I can offer up this Sunday? So when I kneel and the priest begins the words of consecration, I can picture my guardian angel walking over with a bowl containing all the sacrifices and all the good deeds I've done this week for the love of God. Or will my guardian angel walk all the way up there sad because the bowl is empty? I have done nothing that I could offer God. That is the purpose of Mass. We're coming to worship God. We are going to give something to God. The fact that He gives us eternal life through His only begotten Son is amazing on its own. But remember, the church does not require us to come and receive communion every Sunday. That is not the requirement that the church imposes on us. The church imposes on us the requirement that we come to Mass every Sunday, but not receive. We are to receive once a year. On Easter, that's it. This is the only requirement as far as receiving communion goes. Now, don't get me wrong, the church would like us to receive much more often than that. But why is it that their constraint is on coming to Mass, not on receiving communion? Precisely because Mass is about us Coming here and telling God, thank you. And oh, by the way, here's this little trinket I've saved for you. Like my five-year-old might come to me and say, Dad, I got a lollipop. Here, it's for you. And probably I could, I don't know, clean the, my engine with this thing. It's filled with chemicals. I don't know what there is. I mean, it's, just, it's scary. And our things often look like that. Look like a little lollipop. God, look, I got this little bowl. You know, I just said thank you to my sister when she gave me the, the cereals this morning and didn't yell at my brother because he didn't do his bed. And uh, I, 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 uh, I didn't, um, I didn't, I wasn't angry when somebody cut me on the highway. And uh, a lollipop. Not a son, a lollipop. But you know what? Just as you might be really happy, the little kid coming to you, and he's so happy, joyful, what he's giving you, 
God is like that. God will take this lollipop. And he makes wonders with it. Just as he did with Abraham. You see, it was really interesting in the text when Isaac, Isaac calls upon him. And he says to him, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. You see, he doesn't shirk away from it. He doesn't say, here I am. He doesn't say, um, what do you want? Don't talk to me. I'm, I'm busy now. Dad is busy. Just go away. Another one of our richness, especially us men. We're busy. Another one of those things we have acquired the right for. Busy. Put it on the wall next to, why me? Don't bother me. I'm busy. Here I am. Here am I, my son. Even though it hurts him, he doesn't shirk away from it. My son, whom I'm going to sacrifice. My son. So often, we do things that can bruise relationships and family. So often, we do things that hurt others in our family. So often, we're not level. We're not balanced. We're not, we don't do the right thing. But you know what? If we maintain friendship with God, if we are sincere in our quest, in our trying out to serve Him, in giving Him those lollipops, He smooths over all of this. He clears it up. Those little fights that happen don't turn later into regrets. He gives you the strength to say to your kids, you know what, I'm sorry, I blew up. Some of you are my age, might remember the older generation, for whatever reason, maybe because all of them watched the movies of John Wayne or something, I don't know. But it seemed that they had a really acute amnesia when it came to the word, I am sorry. It did not exist in their vocabulary for whatever reason. Especially towards their children. It's a sign of weakness. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. How can I say that? Another one of those trophies next to why me? I am busy, and I never say I'm sorry. Another one of my entitlements, the sign that I'm very rich. How can I say I'm sorry to my, to my daughter after I yelled at her? Can't do that. Yes, you can. If you love her, you will. And God smooths over all these things and perhaps keeps the family together, as he did here. Isaac, in three days, with a kid, you're going to go and kill. You know how the tension could be running? You know how high it could be? Think about that. Especially if you're home. Especially you mothers. End of the day, you're tired. Your teenage boy can't stop talking. Or he's not talking at all. And you've asked him 12 times to do his bed. Or take the garbage out. And it's as if he doesn't even exist. Or he's on planet Jupiter. Or even beyond at the other confining universe, and it takes time for the message to get across, like three weeks before he actually does it. And all the disappointments of life have been piling up that week for whatever reason. And what happens? Let me put you this way. We give ourselves the right to be angry. We give ourselves the right to explode. We give ourselves the right to show everybody else 
how difficult it is for us. Another one of our entitlements we can put on top of the chimney. Nothing there. Father, my son. And what is Isaac is asking? He's asking the one question that Abraham really doesn't want to answer. Okay, the kid is smart. God, see the wood. I see the knife. And I see how you're going to, the kindle. You can see you can start the fire. Okay, where's the lamb? Let me put you this way. You're in the hospital. There's a kid. Got a tumor. The kid is dying. And the kid, the kid looks you up in the eyes and says, I'm not going to die. What do you do? The wrong thing to do would be, oh, no, no, you're not dying. Everything's okay. You know, here, eat this donut. Watch TV. The right thing to do, the right thing to do, is to love the kid through death. That's the right thing to do. That's what Abraham did. He loved his son throughout those three days. He did not stop. Even when he put him on the wood, even when he was about to sacrifice him, he loved him. He didn't stop. Oftentimes, our kids can make life jarring. Make it difficult. And we would rather that they would stop, do something or the other. And it's hard on us. And it's demanding. Just as Abraham carries that wood up the mountain. He's carrying the wood. And his son is too. It's hard. It's demanding. It's heavy. It's hot. We're not comfortable. We would rather the whole situation go away. And so we give it to them. Or to somebody else. You know, your mother-in-law or... Somebody else. Somebody else is going to get it. Not Abraham. He spared his wife. The whole ordeal. He didn't go back to her and say, How could you let my son Ishmael go? He didn't complain about this. And then right as he is about to kill his son, God calls him Abraham. You know, he never called him Abram. When God spoke to him before, he never said Abram. You know why? It was not his real name. Abraham is his real name. What is your real name? What is the name with which God is calling you? That's important. That's part of that self-knowledge. Who are we in the face of God? I don't mean by that that God's going to you know, call you the way he called Abraham. With a clear voice, or you know, your cell phone is going to ring, or something. You get a message from heaven through, you know, texting. I'm not someone talking about, but I am talking about a self-revelation, a self-acknowledgement of who you are through a call to your vocation, to what you're going to become. Often we're restless because we miss that who we are. Somebody said, happiness consists in doing something you love with someone you love, in the place you love. I don't know if this is happiness or not, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in this. Doing something you love, with someone you love, in the place you love. Abraham, despite it all, during those three days, was happy. I don't mean by that he was giddy. 
And he was cracking jokes every three seconds. I mean, he had that sense of strength, hope, and joy beneath the turmoil. So that his soul would look like a lake where the surface is being agitated by a storm, by the depth of the lake is still and peaceful. And this is how we should be throughout life. When we walk with God, He will make us go through all of this for a good reason. For a good reason. So God calls to Him from heaven and He says, For now I know, for now I know, verse 12. St. Jerome says, at the very moment that he offered his son, what does God say to Abraham? I know now that you fear the Lord your God. Have you just now known Abraham, Lord, with whom you have communicated for such a long time? Because Abraham had such great faith in sacrificing his own son. On that account, God first began to know him. Why have we said all this? Because it is written, for the Lord knows the way of the just. Let us put it another way. The way, the life, and the truth is Christ. Let us walk therefore in Christ, and then God the Father will know our way. Because I know now, translation, because you know that I know. You understand? You know that I know. One view, one spiritual view, one spiritual journey I could take you through this whole text would be confession. One way to look at the whole thing here is in the, in, through the lenses of confession. God calls us forth to confession. And when we walk to confession, which is up on the mountain, we walk with a heavy heart. We're carrying our sins. And we're dreading going there. We don't want to go. Just as he was. And when we get to the mountain, we tell the servants, that is the world, stay where you are. This, my, my son and I will come back. What does that mean? The son represents what? The life of grace in us. Unless you be like children, you will not reach the kingdom of heaven. But then both the son and I, meaning the child in us, the purity are laden with the heavy load of our sins that we have to carry all the way up. And when we get there, we have a sense that we may be losing because we have to essentially expose it all. We may be losing that which is most precious to us. And right then, God comes to us and says, I know you. Your sins are forgiven. Be at peace. God knows the way of the just, meaning that He cares for the way of the just. He protects the way of the just. He nurtures the way of the just. And He prepares us and helps us to be prepared to make the ultimate offering. When the father of St. Therese of Lisieux visited her for the last time, he was very sick. He was very sick and he looked at her, if you've read the, the story of a soul, he looked at her and all he did was this, point up, meaning in heaven. And later, she discovered that during Mass, he, he saw himself, his body, lying on the altar as an offering, as a whole burnt offering for God. That is our journey. 
we are in mortal bodies. We're going to die. This is not if. We are. The question is, how? What will our death be like? Would it be like the offering of Abraham on the mountain? Would it be like the offering of Abraham to God, so that God will stay the hand of the devil and rescue us and say, I know you, you're my own, you belong to me? Or would it be, would it be, is it going to be the way of Judas? Between Abraham and Judas, there is a chasm that no one can cross. What will our death be? This is our, the question that is foremost in our minds. This is why we live, so that we may die. And in dying, making of our life a three-word offering, I love you, Lord. That's why we live. And in living like this, we could say we have indeed lived. And if we don't live like this, we're dead already. This is why that particular chapter is a pinnacle or is at the center of our faith. It is a portrait of what our life ought to be like. Be not afraid. No matter what happens, I am with you. I will make you go through it. No, your life will not be a cruise and your life will not be um, a perfect, peaceful sailing through blue, um, blue skies. My life wasn't like this, nor will your life be. For where the Master is, there will be His servants. But I will make it possible for you to come and join me, if you walk this walk. That is this chapter. God bless you. Questions? Yes. A couple of reasons. The question is, how come Isaac didn't say anything? One, one way to look at it is that he was very young. And therefore, um, he could not um, protest or resist his father, and he accepted his, his fate. The other one is that he's actually, he was actually 33 years old when this happened. And he accepted the sacrifice, so that, that the sacrifice was as much his as, as was Abraham's. So he was a full participant in the whole in the whole uh, story. The interesting thing about Isaac is the only one who had one wife, right, of the patriarchs, right? So, very good question. But that's, uh, that's how we typically answer this one. Okay? Yes. Christ. Yes. Is he's 33 years of age foreshadowing Christ. Yes. Absolutely. It would be a foreshadowing of Jesus and him essentially carrying his cross. So, he was carrying the wood with his father, and so uh, Christ would be carrying his, uh, his cross as well. Yeah. That's a very good point. Uh, God could have indeed let Abraham carry the whole thing forward, and then he would have raised him from the dead. Um, I think the simplest answer is that there was no need for it. God doesn't have to go beyond what is absolutely necessary. Abraham demonstrated his faith and to God by essentially going all the way through, and so did Isaac, and that was sufficient to God. The other reason is obviously 
resurrection from the dead is something that was uh, uh, absolutely dependent on, um, on, uh, on Jesus and on the cross. So it happened very, very... It happened only in the Old Testament, if I'm not mistaken, probably happened once or twice. Uh, one by Isaiah praying for the son of that um, widow. And maybe one by um, 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 Isaiah and um, the prophet that came right after him. I think those are the only two cases where somebody was raised from the dead. So it is very rare that it would happen. And in this specific instance, there was really no, it was not necessary. So he essentially spared him that um, ordeal. So the question is, how will God judge us? Right? Well, as far as our personal judgment goes, there's a number of things we have to be aware of. First, of, first and foremost, um, have we lived according to the teachings of the church? So whether we knew what the teachings were or not, did we live according? Because this is objective reality that we have to deal with. So on our part, are we doing what we have to do to know what the church teaches and live according to the teachings of the church? That's the first thing. The second is, have um, have we really dedicated our lives to Christ? And have we lived according to this dedication? So, it's really simple. Let me put it to you this way. Um, if I tell, yesterday was a perfect example. Um, for for one, some of my kids to essentially go through their chores, it might take them 45 minutes. But it just so happened that I started a movie, and I said, I am not waiting. Seven minutes. Seven minutes. It was done. You get my, catch my drift? That, that's what I'm talking about. God seeks the intention. Right? Have we been, okay, what does it take to pass? Okay, i got to go to church, and i got to do this, and then okay, I'm going to do all these things. But it's really not the priority in my life. It's secondary. I have more important things that I have to tend to. If that's how we're living, we're in trouble. But if we're living and saying, there are all these things I want to do for the greater glory of God, and if God doesn't want me to do them, I'm not going to do them. You're still doing the same thing, but the outlook is completely different. Are we, are we motivated by the love of Jesus Christ? And do we show it in our actions? Are we sorry for our sins? Are we examining ourselves? Are we really inquiring about prayers? Are we taking, are we taking our life in prayer seriously? Or is it just sort of something we do on the side and then, oh well. Fair? So I'll put the question back to you. Right? There's this guy who wants to marry you. He's got a business. And he basically tells you through his actions, he can see you once a week. Friday evening from 6.30 to quarter past 8. And mm, Tuesday from 6 in the morning to 8 in the morning. But he's really in love with you. What would you say? Do you expect Jesus to say anything less? Is that fair? Yes. Because when... The question is, how did Abraham know that God was speaking with him? Because when God speaks with you, there is no doubt. 
Remember, God does not deceive. So when He speaks with somebody, it comes with such clarity and such certainty, there is no doubt left because He will not leave doubt in your mind that He's speaking to you. That's why. Okay? And probably, <laughs> if it was possible to have doubt, that would be the right moment. Right? Yes? True. He was talking to God for sometimes and listening to Him, and that helps tremendously. But at the same time, we always have to be careful. That's why I didn't want to put too much emphasis on this. Because we can never gain sufficient experience to rely on our own strength to distinguish the voices. We really always have to rely on God's grace. And in, the, in this case, even if he was talking to him for 30 years, every single time God has to talk to somebody, he makes it absolutely clear. It doesn't depend on the receiver. Because God will leave no doubt. Right? St. Teresa of Avila describes that very, very well in her autobiography. Yes. Oh, good question. So God will never tempt you to do a mortal sin like he asked Abraham to do. So you're looking at this as Abraham committing a mortal sin. Would he? That's a very good question. No, no, no. Let's just stay right, right there right there on this question. Is he committing a mortal sin? Let's say what Ramsey said was true. He went through it all the way. Would that be a mortal sin? Let's think about this. It's a really good question. Well, it would be shocking to us, yes. But would that be a mortal sin? If you say no, why not? God asked him, okay. But beyond that, beyond the God asked him. Yes, David? He could raise him from the dead. But I think we're missing a really important point. No, but that's a good point, Bobby. It's not about the Ten Commandments. It's a very good point that you're bringing up. Let me tell you why. What is the purpose of our children? Offer them up to God. In other words, and that's I think what you're highlighting, what Abraham was doing is not the exception. It's the rule. We would rather it would be the exception, but it is the rule. What is the purpose of our children? To give glory to God. And I think this is what I was trying to highlight throughout the whole thing, but I, maybe I didn't put it in, as much in focus as I should have. What you see before you displayed isn't the exceptional exhibit. It is exhibit A. This is what we all ought to be doing. Offering our children up to God. That doesn't mean right, that we go through and sacrifice them in this way, but it means other kinds of sacrifices. What if your daughter decides to become a cloistered nun. You will never see her again as long as she lives on this earth. Isn't that a sacrifice to parents? It is. But that's not a mortal sin here either because she's dying to the world. She's dying to you. Now, now, okay, now, let, let, let's not talk about abuse of Scripture. This is a completely different topic. I'm talking about certainty of the truth. In our lives today, the purpose of our children is what? They're not here for our enjoyment. That's secondary. Right? They're, the purpose of our children and our life, I'm not saying just children, all of us, is to give glory to God. So our lives are offered to God as a sacrifice. Right? No different. The fact that the agent of the sacrifice happens to be Abraham makes it no different. What if God came to Abraham and said, I am going to, in three days hence, 
You take your son over there, and I'm going to inflict him with a disease that will kill him. Is there any difference that the agent of death is the hands of Abraham versus the disease? It is God's will being done. No different. You see, the difference is that I commit a mortal sin when I do something against God's will, not when somebody dies. But in the case of Abraham, he knew. Obviously, he had certainty this is what God wanted. There was no doubt. As I said earlier, when God speaks to someone, He leaves no doubt in the mind of that person about what He wants. But you wouldn't trust, neither did Abraham. But if God were to speak to you, there would be no doubt left in your mind. This, this is an experience that's really hard for us to understand. But if, you, if, you, if you're interested to learn more about it, read the book of St. Teresa of Avila. She describes it very clearly, with, very cl- gr- with great clarity, what, is, what are the qualities of the voice of God and why is it that there's no doubt left for you when God speaks. Unlike the angels and the, and the, and, and the saints or the devils. Very different. Okay? Yes. It was for both, Right? God doesn't use someone without rewarding that person. So Abraham received a great reward from God, right? But also, when he told him, you will be the father of the multitudes, he was a father to us when he did what he did. So yes, it was also for us. In two ways. First, to see what he did, but secondarily to learn for ourselves how we ought to behave in front of God. Right? Yes, very good question. Yes. Oh, absolutely. When I say what I meant when I said you go to God and you offer up, my, my, my sole intention was to say, don't put yourself in the position of thinking, I'm going to Mass to receive something. I need consolation. I need to feel better. I need this. I need, that's what I'm going to Mass for. Right? There is nothing wrong with any of those things to bring our petitions before God. And petitions are part of the, of the liturgy. Obviously, it's a very important part. But it, it detracts from our intention. Right? Our intention should be, I'm coming here to offer up what I have. I'm going up the mountain to give you what I have. And yeah, it may not be a pleasant trek. It may not be a pleasant week that I had. I may have had a lot of problems and difficulties. But I'm coming up to offer whatever I have. That, that's what I mean. So obviously, recognition of our sins and prayer of thanksgiving, and adoration, all of that's part of it, right? That's what I really meant. This is the focus. How, how do you, and you know, the problem is that we're not used to do, the, to do this. So if we show up 30 seconds before Mass, there's no way we're going to get prepared for this. That's why you, gotta, you need to be there a little bit earlier. And unfortunately, the, the problem, obviously, is that everybody, or a lot of people are sitting there talking, thinking, waiting for the show to begin. There's no notion, I'm not saying this to blame them, I'm saying this to, to underscore our ignorance of the place we're in. We don't think the way Moses thought. Take off your shoes. This ground is holy. We don't think I'm entering holy ground. I'm entering a movie theater. And I sit down, wait for the show to begin, and I'm missing my popcorn. I'm exaggerating slightly, but not by much. But if it was, if... It was truly silent and allowed us to focus our attention on the tabernacle and be ready for Mass. What a difference it would make. And the other thing you can do, by the way, try to stay 10 minutes after Mass. Don't just take off and leave. Stay 10 minutes in Thanksgiving. Just 
Say, thank you. Imagine that. You go to a wedding. Right? Go to the wedding. And you go through the whole thing. You go to the reception. You sit down. You eat. And as soon as the cake is cut, you take off. You don't say thank you to the... You don't wish them nothing. You just take off. Boy, that was a good meal. Check. What, what, what are you saying about yourself? Uh-huh. Yeah, too busy. Too busy. Guess what? Our personal judgment. You know what Jesus is going to say? Sorry, I'm too busy. As, that's my point earlier. Are we taking him seriously? What if in our busyness, we take off 10 minutes later and we're dead? Of course, it can happen to us. We're invincible, right? We're never going to die. Not like this anyhow. Not now, much later. Yeah? All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.